0: Many of you have had the chance to meet Herb and Ines. Herb and his wife have been attending here now for a couple of years. They've been very involved in the church. Many of you have helped support Ines as she's getting ready to leave, leave for Lebanon this summer to work with Syrian refugees. Herb's been, uh, Herb was uh, spearheaded a Thursday night prayer meeting that is, it is continuing to bless the church to this day. He also teaches Sunday school and has, has been a personal encouragement to me in a lot of ways. Uh, Herb approached me last November and asked about the possibility of, of joining the staff part-time. Uh, Herb has a lot of gifts that he um, has brought to the table and, uh, and, and has a lot of gifts that I know that I don't have. And so over the last five or six months, I've given this a lot of prayer. I brought it to the board and we prayed about it together and uh, looked at some ways that maybe we could have Herb plug in in, in areas that, that need some attention and need some help and, and fit right in line with his gifts. And so we've asked Herb to join the staff on a part-time basis. And to just help us in some of these areas uh, with regards to ministering to seniors, Uh, we're going to ask him to assist a little bit in some counseling and to work with some of our small groups. And and just kind of help, he'll help help fill the pulpit from time to time for me. And and just, uh, I just can't tell. I tell you how much of a blessing he's been to me personally, and he's, he's got a very, uh, a very, he's a very godly man, he has a very gentle demeanor, and there's been times when he's graciously come alongside me and had to put his arm around me and say, Pastor, what are you thinking of over here, what, what's, what's going on over here, and, and he'll leave the office, and I, I, I told my wife one day, I said, I, I think Herb just kicked me in the pants, but he was, he was so nice about it, I didn't even feel it, but... Uh, so we just want to ask you to, to pray for God's wisdom and continued leading as, as he helps bless us a couple of days a week in the offices. Um, I, I put together a letter that just shared a little bit about these two things, uh, the building and, and about bringing Herb on staff. And so if you'd like to know a little bit more, there's a letter on the, on the Welcome Center that you can read through. And, and by all means, if you have any questions, you can contact one of us. But I asked Herb if he would be willing to, uh, to kind of open up our time of God's word and prayer this morning.
1: check one, two. Never hand a pastor a microphone. (laughs) I'm wearing red today because I'm not sure. No, it's Pentecost Sunday. A lot of churches celebrate Pentecost Sunday and don't really know why. You You don't celebrate it, but you understand why, because the Spirit of God is here And that's why Ines and I are here, because we sense the movement and the power of God in your lives and in ours, because we are together as God's people. You know, the Pentecost came and the Spirit of God descended upon his people with power and launched his church into the world, and you and I are a part of that great legacy. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for today. And I want to just thank you for my friend, Pastor Jeremiah, and for the privilege, Lord, of being able to stand beside him and join him in the great ministry that you have for him here at Brown Corners. Lord, would you pour out your blessing upon your people? Would you speak through him? And give us the words that we need for our lives. And Lord, would you heal the wounds of our hearts. And would you wind up the brokenness in our lives. That we might be whole. And that we might continue to bring honor and glory to you. Thank you again for Pastor Jeremiah. And Lord, would you bless him now as he shares in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen.
0: I forgot to mention, too, as I was introducing him, that um, Herb Herb is a retired pastor, and Herb um, started pastoral ministry about 15 years before I was born, and so he's been doing this a long time, and the Lord has used him in a lot of ways in a lot of different places around this country, and uh, so we appreciate your prayers. If you have the Word of God nearby, please turn with me to Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, and if you don't happen to have a copy of God's Word with you, make sure you grab a pew Bible uh, from the pew nearby you. How do you define success? What is success to you? The world typically defines success by results, whether it's in in whatever realm of business you might find yourself, the world often looks at the end game, the outcome, and that's how they determine if things are successful. There's a reason that (laughs) that so many people are calling for Brad Asmus to be fired (laughs) right now because the Tigers are not producing results. Whether it's his fault or not, people are calling for his job because they're not getting results. In the business world, that, that may be okay, but the kingdom of God works a bit differently. And as believers, we need to realize and remember what God's definition, the way God defines success in His kingdom. And today's story is a perfect illustration of how God views success. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Eric Little. He is the man about whom they made the well-known, critically acclaimed movie, Chariots of Fire. I won't try to hum the soundtrack to that as great as it is. I'll mess it up. And if you've seen that movie, you know that his life is an inspiring one. You you may not know some of the background behind his life, though. He grew up uh, in northern China in the city of Chaozong as the child of Scottish missionaries who were preaching the gospel there in China. Spent his first few years there, and when he was six, his parents took him to Scotland along with his eight-year-old brother to attend boarding school, as was common in those days. Eric's mom and younger sister stayed in Scotland for a year while the boys got adjusted, but then parents moved back to China to continue ministry while the boys stayed back in Scotland in their school, uh, to, to, ha- to attend to their schooling. As Eric grew, he uh, became a very gifted athlete. He excelled in rugby and in, in track. In fact, his, his abilities were so great that he began to be really well-known in, the, in, the, in, the, in Scotland to the point where by 1923, he was like the Steph, Steph Curry of, of Scotland. I mean, everybody knew his name and everybody, everybody uh, really looked up to him as an athlete. He was the most well-known athlete in all of, all of Scotland. And so as you may know, if you've seen the movie or read a book about him in 1924, he competed for the United Kingdom in the Olympic Games in Paris. His bread and butter event was the 100 meter. And uh, that was where he was expected to take gold. But as you may remember from the story, he discovered that the race was going to be on a Sunday Sunday. And his convictions led him to bow out of that race because he didn't feel like he would honor God by running on Sundays. Now, today in our modern culture, we really don't even have a frame of reference for that kind of uh, honor and devotion to the Lord's day. But back then, he took that very seriously. And it was an important step for him. So instead of running the 100, he, he trained for the 220 and the 400. He was not really expected to do well in either of them. In the 220, he got a bronze, and in the 400, he was given no chance, but that's the, that's the climax of the movie. If you've watched it, he wins the 400. He wins the gold and set a new world record, even though no one gave him a fighting chance. And if you think that that's all there is to Eric Little's story, you would think that, that, that by the world standards, he had a very successful life. He was an underdog, came from nowhere, won this event, and lived happily ever after. But there's more to the story, and we'll come back to that in a moment. The character in our story today had a similar life. John the Baptist started off his ministry with a bang. Yeah, he was a bit weird. He dressed a little funny, and he ate bugs. But he accumulated a large number of followers early on. And his ministry was to point everyone to Jesus. He was the forerunner, the one that, that went before Jesus and said, Hey, one mightier than me is coming. In fact, when he saw Jesus along the banks of the Jordan, he said, Behold, here is the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And at that point of his ministry, he began to step further and further into the shadows so that the spotlight could be on Jesus. And we meet him again. we're going to do is read, beginning in verse 14. We'll, we'll go up through verse 20, and then we'll get a little bit of background here. It tells us in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, that King Herod heard of it. Now, we should go back to verse 13 to figure out what it is. Remember, the disciples had just been on a missionary journey. The, Jesus had sent them out two by two. And it t- tells us in verse 13, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil Many who were sick and healed them. So the gospel's going forth, miracles are being done, and King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, no, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. In this story, we meet Herod. This would be Herod Antipas. Now, when you read the Gospels and even into Acts, we meet meet this this name Herod. and, And there's actually a number of different Herods throughout the history of the New Testament. So, just to kind of put this in perspective, the guy who was in charge when Jesus was born is known as Herod the Great not because he was some great moral upstanding man, because he certainly wasn't, but he did a lot of great things in their culture, some magnificent buildings and that sort of thing. And so he was the Herod who wanted all the babies put to death when Jesus was born. That was Herod the Great. That's this guy's dad. Well, Herod the Great had like 10 wives and a bazillion kids. And when he died, he divided his kingdom into fourths and gave it to to several of his children. In fact, I have a a map. I don't know if this kind of stuff helps you. Um, let's see if I can bring her up there. the uh, The area that he left to Herod Antipas, the Herod in this story, is in the, in the is in the purple there, and that's his region that he's in charge of in the in the area of Israel. Well, Herod Antipas, um, he married a woman from the area of. Uh, Nabatea, where the blue arrow is down at the bottom of the screen. He married the daughter of another king so that they could have kind of an alliance between their two kingdoms. He was not really happy with this wife, and they didn't get along super well. And he met his brother's wife, who he kind of took a liking to. We'll get to that in just a moment. The events of this story likely take place where the red arrow is. In fact, you can go visit the site today. It's in an area called Macarius, uh, you've, um, they, they've found and uncovered the prison where John the Baptist was probably kept, the, the palace, that you can actually go physically walk probably in the very room where these events took place, or in the ruins of the very room where these events took place, if you were to go to that area today. It's kind of interesting. And so this Herod, Herod Antipas, who's a, who's a wicked, selfish, self-centered man, discovers that this, this guy Jesus is beginning to get some attention in his kingdom, in his area. And so he starts asking around, who is this guy? And there's different rumors about who he might be. Some say John the Baptist is risen from the dead. No, no, Elijah's back from the dead. That's who this is. No, maybe he's one of the other prophets of old. We don't really know. And Herod takes the position that he is the resurrected John the Baptist. He believes that, the, the, maybe even the, believes the ghost of John the Baptist had come back to haunt him. And so, what the, the ensuing verses are going to tell us is the backstory to how, the, how John the Baptist got dead in the first place. Because Mark never told us that. We, had, we met him in chapter 1, but the last thing that we found out in chapter 1, verse 14, was that Herod had him thrown in jail. And we learned nothing else. Well, apparently during this time, Herod... Herod had John the Baptist murdered. And so Mark now is going to tell us that story as a bit of a flashback. And so it tells us that he had him arrested, in verse 17, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife. All right, this is where the family gets real messed up. If you have a messed up family, take heart, because you probably can't beat the family of the Herods, okay? So... um, This guy's half-brother, Philip, married one of his nieces, one of his brother's kids, okay? Philip married one of his brother's daughters. Her name is Herodias. This guy here in this story met Herodias and was like, I like her better than my wife from Nabibia, Nabatea. And so uh, he decided to divorce his wife. Herodias said, I kind of like him more than his half-brother I'm married to because his kingdom's a little better than my husband's, and I think I could have a little bit better social status. So she divorced her husband. Herod Antipas divorced his wife. They got married, and they had this kind of wicked, unholy alliance. And John the Baptist, a local prophet, comes to them and says, Um, that's wrong. (laughs) You cannot marry your brother's wife. That's wicked, that's evil, and what you have done here is wrong. Well, Herodias was incensed, and she wanted John the Baptist dead. But it tells us here that she could not, for the sake of her husband, uh, for Herod, fe- verse 20 says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, but he heard him gladly. This is, this is amazing to me, that John would have the gall, the nerve, to speak up in such a manner. If, if you're filling out the outline, you see today that it's very basic, very simple. We've just got two things to write down. And the first thing I want to encourage you with is to be bold for the Lord, to be bold John the Baptist knew that this was not going to be well-received. I mean, how often can you get away with going to a a monarch? He wasn't technically a king. He was a tetrarch, but he wanted, wanted people to call him king. How often can you get away with this by going and confronting them in their sin and it working out well for you? He had to know what he was getting himself into. But this man was not just a political leader in the land. He was was a spiritual leader in the land. He was a a Jew. He was was someone who was supposed to follow God's word. And John the Baptist had the boldness to confront him with God's word. (laughs) Oh, that we would have more John the Baptists in our midst. We were not afraid to call sin, sin. To, To lovingly and graciously stop sinners in their tracks. And call them back to Christ. Especially in this case, someone who should know better. When we think about the way that God defines success. I just want to tell you something. That, that you One of the ways to be successful in God's eyes are to do things that actually require you stepping out in faith. You know, there's a reason the Bible talks so much about faith. Because we need it. If we are to accomplish anything for God, we need to be willing to step out where we're not really sure our feet are going to land, where we're really not certain as to the outcome of of our decision to be bold for Christ, but we're willing to do it anyways because we have this conviction that burns in our soul and comes from the very Spirit of God at work in us. John the Baptist saw this evil going on before him, and he said, I cannot let this continue. I must say something. And say something he did. The wife wanted him killed. Herod said, no, 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 we're just going to imprison him. So he got thrown in jail. And I'm just, verse 20 perplexes me. It says that Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. (laughs) There's something that happens when you're in the presence of holiness. When you're near a godly man or woman, when you're in the room while they're praying, when you hear them speaking about their relationship with Christ, it does something to you. That even the worst of sinners have a a response. They, They understand that there's something different. Herod was not ready to repent, he was not ready to believe in Christ, but, but he knew that there was something different. I read this week of an account of a, of a man who had went golfing with Billy Graham, and this man was a, either a semi-professional or maybe even a professional golfer, was used to playing very, very well, and a friend of his asked him after the round, or they were, they were out at the driving range later on, and, and, the, and the guy was, just seemed really angry and frustrated. He said, what's going on? He said, well, I played golf the other day with Billy Graham. He said, man, that guy, just all this Jesus stuff, all this talking about God and having religion crammed down my throat. He said, I I couldn't stand it. The the friend said to him, well, what did he say to you? How How did he try to cram it down your throat? The guy was quiet for a minute, and he said, well, he actually never said anything. Sometimes when you're in the presence of someone who, who knows God, who is living a godly Christ-like life, the, the impression and the, the atmosphere that, that is created by a holy walk has ripple effects to the lives of people around you. I'm not, that's not saying, and, and God never tells us that we don't need to use our words. That uh, uh, Romans 10, how will they hear unless they have a preacher? That The gospel needs to be proclaimed. But it all begins with our life, doesn't it? And and Herod saw something in John, and he was fearful of him and wouldn't put him to death. Oh, that people would see that same holy passion in us that would cause them to be drawn closer to God. But as we've said before, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, being impressed with God, being impressed with Jesus is simply not enough. And being impressed with John the Baptist is not enough. Herod still did not believe. And so, in verse 21, we find ourselves at Herod's birthday party. Verse 21 says, An opportunity came, which tells you that Herodias had her eyes open. She was still seething with anger. This... This fierce, intense hatred she had for John the Baptist had not abated at all. She was looking for an opportunity to go beyond jail to have him put to death. Verse 21, an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to, her, said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought on his head a platter, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Herod has a big birthday party, invites all the important people of the land. It's, it's a big bash, and anybody who's anybody is there. And at some point in the drunkenness and the, the revelry and the partying, someone says, hey, why doesn't your stepdaughter come dance for us? So Herodias' is, daughter is brought in it really doesn't tell us if it was her idea or their idea. It just says when she came and danced. and uh, I won't go into any description, but I'm pretty sure that she was waltzing. Um, this was a big drunken party, and whatever she did there on stage got a bunch of the men excited. And it got Herod so excited that he says, I want to just do whatever for you. I'll give you anything you want. He said, up to half my kingdom. Now, that was a figure of speech. He wasn't actually going to literally give her half the kingdom. But that was a figure of speech, a way of saying, I, whatever you want, it's yours. I, 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 wow. And so this daughter, unsure of what to ask for, goes back and asks for her mom, who was waiting for just such an opportunity. The wickedness... The evil in her heart was had been churning and brewing, and now it was it, given an opportunity for full outlet. And she said, "Oh, you know what I want? I want John the Baptist's head." And so she came back and told Herod. In verse twenty-six is an awfully indicting verse. It says, "The king was exceedingly sorry." Have you ever made a promise that you wish you had? You ever said something you wish you could take back? (laughs) All God's people said, Amen. This was one of those times and and he was sorry. But you know what? I don't know that he was sorry for the right reasons. But for the says because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. (laughs) He was still the ruler. He could have said, absolutely not. But he was afraid of what people would think if he backed out at that point. He had already said, you can have whatever you want. It reminded me a little bit of Judges chapter 11. You remember that tragic, heartbreaking story of Jephthah, who has a great victory. And for whatever moronic reason, he says, when I get home, whatever comes out of my house first, I will offer as a sacrifice to God. I don't know if he was keeping a ton of animals in the house, and he was used to, used to some chickens running out of the house when he walked in. But his daughter runs out. And rather than asking God for forgiveness for making a rash vow, and repenting and offering sacrifices for his sin, he sticks to his guns. And he offers up his daughter as a sacrifice to God. Unbelievable, sickening story. And, and, and I feel like the same situation is here. He knows he should, he should take it back. He knows he should do something about it, but he's too cowardly. You know, sometimes God calls us to something that we know takes some boldness, takes some courage, and we, we, we flake out because we're not trusting in God at the moment. And we're looking around us and we're looking at all of our, there's my general over there and there's my, my dad's best friend and everybody's here and watching me. I can't look weak. I'll have to deal with my wife nagging me about it for months. All right, go get him. And in his cowardness and in his weakness, he succumbs to peer pressure. The fear of man is a terrible snare. Oh, we have to be on lookout and on guard for that. We live to please one. We live before God. Men and women, friends and family may sometimes not understand, may sometimes scoff, may sometimes disagree, but God calls us to be faithful to Him. And so Herod had him executed. And John the Baptist's ministry ends in a very lackluster way. He dies almost forgotten, in obscurity, in a prison. And we might think, we we might be tempted to say that he really didn't have that successful of a ministry. He ministered for a couple short years and his whole job was to talk about somebody else. He got thrown in prison, and there his life ended relatively young, probably his very early thirties like Jesus was. But you know, the second thing I want to encourage you with is to be faithful. See, God's not looking for flashiness. He's looking for faithfulness. God's not looking for people who want to build big ministry empires, who, 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 who desire to get famous and, and have lots of accolades and praises and honor. He's looking for people who are willing to serve Him. And maybe nobody ever writes about it. Maybe no one ever hears about it. Maybe no one even ever thanks them. But He's looking for us to serve faithfully in whatever He calls us to. Can't judge this, judge success the way the world judges success. We need to judge success the way God does. And that's by faithfulness. By serving and laboring wherever God's calling you. Faithfully doing God's will today, maybe changing a poopy diaper. It, it, it might be wiping snotty noses. It might be going and in, in sitting beside someone's bedside who can't speak to you. Faithfulness may mean that you continue to love your spouse even if they want nothing to do with God and seem to show you no affection whatsoever. Faithfulness may mean stepping outside of your comfort zone and Going to, going to work in kids' ministry like Steve just, just asked us to. Faithfulness may mean you and your ministry laboring away faithfully, without recognition, without honor, and without glory. Eric Little returned to China as a missionary the year following the Olympics. He gave up the chance to continue on as a famous athlete in Scotland to potentially run in one more Olympic Uh, contest. He went and served as a teacher in China. In 1930, he got engaged to one of his students who was from the UK and married her in 1934. Her name was Florence McKenzie. By 1940, missionaries were evacuated because of World War II and the Japanese occupation. Yet he elected to stay. He sent his wife and two young girls out of the country to Canada to live with relatives. His wife was six months pregnant at the time with her third child. Whether you agree or disagree with that decision, he felt called by God to continue laboring among the Chinese, even in the midst of their peril during the war. In 1942, the Japanese had foreign nationals placed under house arrest. And in 1943, they sent all the the British missionaries in his city to work at a prison camp in Weishun. There were six groups from three different cities. There were about 1,800 people in this prison camp. They were overcome with hard work and boredom. There was nothing, very little to do. Whole families were kept there. And, And one of some of his responsibilities included teaching some of the children and uh, playing games with them, organizing games. But in November of 1944, he began to get terrible headaches. He, he thought he was beginning to have a nervous breakdown. He was getting very irritable and uh, frustrated and, and felt uh, stressed out and and uh, was uh, w- thought really the cause of his issues it was a spiritual problem and he began trying to pray more but he just was losing the desire to even, even draw his attention to the things of God in, uh, on February 21st 1945 I'm sorry on February 11th he had a small stroke and then on the 21st after several days in bed he passed away just months before the war would end. He suffered a seizure and lost consciousness. It wouldn't be revealed until an autopsy afterward that he had an inoperable tumor deep on the left side of his brain. That night he died alone in a work camp, had not seen his wife and children in over three years. And you might look at his life and say, what a waste. Think about all the impact he could have had back in Scotland. If he had just stayed as an athlete, couldn't he have just been a witness there? Sure. That's not what God had called him to. Couldn't John the Baptist have been much more successful if he had just, just left things alone and not got on Herod's bad side? Sure. That's what God had called him to. You see, sometimes, sometimes faithfulness and sometimes success in God's eyes, it'll look a little bit like it does in our eyes. Maybe they'll make a movie about you. Maybe they'll write books about you. Maybe, maybe lots of people will pat you on the back, and maybe lots of people will talk about you. But just maybe your head will end up on a platter at a dinner party. And God is calling you today to step out and be faithful to Him And not worry about the end game. Not worry about what people are going to think. Not worry about getting people's praises. But about worrying about standing before an audience of one and saying, Here am I, Lord, and I want to be faithful to you. Faithfulness is is all about a long, steadfast obedience. That's why the Bible talks so much about races. (laughs) Because it's hard to finish them. And it's hard to be faithful In the long run, when things are really difficult, when people are booing you from the sidelines, when people are trying to shove you off the track, discourage you, when you see people sitting on the bleachers and it looks just a whole lot easier to be up there, and God says, stay faithful, run the race. Let's make sure today that we're looking at success through God's eyes and not man's. Our gracious heavenly Father we're reminded today of the life and faithfulness of John the Baptist how desperately we need more men and women like him people who are first of all willing to be bold and, and not be ashamed to speak up for the cause of Christ we're not not ashamed of proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repentance And lovingly pointing people to Jesus. And God, I pray that you would give us more people like him who are also willing to be faithful, even if it means spending our final days alone in a prison somewhere. And we think that that's so far off for us as Americans, and maybe it still is, but it's not for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, and they understand and know this reality very well. God, give us the courage to be faithful to whatever you call us to. Give us the courage to proclaim your name no matter the cost. Give us the courage to boldly and lovingly confront those who are in need of meeting Jesus. We have the greatest gift in all the world. We know the end of the story. We know that the, the prison for Eric Little and, and for John the Baptist was not the end. The great glory awaited them in the presence of their Savior. God, I pray that such joyful, joyful hope would embolden us to be faithful and to proclaim Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.